Hello and welcome to the Kielder Observatory podcast. I'm Ian Brannan and I'm joined by Director of Astronomy at Kielder Observatory, Dan Pye. And it's been an award-winning month for Kielder Observatory. Find out why in a few moments. And our special guest this month is Dr Robert Massey, Deputy Executive Director at the Royal Astronomical Society. We'll find out more about the society that's been running for over 200 years now and also some of his own thoughts about the universe. I think it would be really interesting to know how the universe is going to end too and how long that would take. I'm pretty optimistic it's a very, very long way off, but you know, I'd, I'd, go, I'd go with wanting to know the fate of the universe too, I think. All to come here on the Kielder Observatory podcast. First of all, let me introduce Director of Astronomy at Kielder Observatory, Dan Pye. And your job title seems to expand every month. And, and your job title this last month expanded to include uh, not only Director of Astronomy, but also Holder of Awards, because Kielder Observatory has won a very prestigious award. Tell us about that, uh, Dan, because you were there, you were gathered, you were part of the uh, part of the team that went along to the awards. Tell us about what it is that you've won. I was, yeah, and it's it's fantastic to uh, to have um, to have won the award. We won the gold award for small tourist attraction of the year at the Northeast Tourism Awards, which uh, there was a, a, an awful lot of uh, competition in there and, and some really really great venues as well Wood, Woodhorn uh, Museum is a fantastic museum um, and, and they were in our small business category as was um, Usher as well and, and, and it was it was great to, to win the uh, to win the gold in that category uh, it makes it all feel so worthwhile working working so late at night and entertaining people seven days a week and all the, all the work that the team put in I'm, I'm incredibly proud of the team for for doing what they do and 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 upholding the standards that we set um so yes yeah, fantastic to uh, to have won uh, such a prestigious award so Kielder winning the small attraction category and then of course there was the the larger category as well for some of the larger venues and, and names but this puts Kielder alongside some well-known names in in northeast tourism doesn't it yeah, it does. The um, the large visitor attraction of the year this year, gold went to uh, Annick Garden, um, which arguably, not that I'm trying to say that anyone is better than the other, but Annick Garden is probably one of my favourite places to go in the northeast. Um, I, I really love Annick Garden, um, and they were they cleaned up actually at the awards. They won three awards that night. Um, against some really big heavyweights. I mean, Beamish Museum were in there. Beamish, you would think, my gosh, Beamish, uh, being against Beamish in a category must be such a daunting prospect because, of course, such a famous and long-established uh, tourist attraction. But Annick Garden, yep, they, uh, they, they, they swamped the uh, the large visitor attraction this year and, and two other awards as well. Experience and something else, I think it was. I can't remember. And this award, just tell us about it, because um, whilst you've got the actual award, um, the the process of winning it was such that some people came along and you didn't know that they were award judges and they had the full Kielder experience and they've reported back and uh, and you've won the, won the award, which is tremendous. But real stamp of approval, though, for anybody who is planning to come to Kielder Observatory or forming their list of things to do in the Northeast over the, the coming months and spring and summer, then uh, you, you know that coming to the Kielder Observatory is is going to be a top quality experience. Yeah, it does, and I think that's the thing when you when you're looking to spend money, um, particularly on an experience. 
you need to have confidence in that experience that you're going to have a good time. Um, and albeit that 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 stuff can be subjective, uh, depending on who, of course, uh, goes and what their desires and likes are. Um, I think just having uh, the recognition to say that we we we've been vetted by a group of uh, of, of judges, uh, we've been mystery shopped. Um, we didn't know when they were coming, and 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 they just turned up. They didn't reveal themselves to us at all, and then um, and then we should win this award. So it's, it it is a real stamp of approval, almost like the uh, the whole hotelier thing, where you you would go to a, a hotel and uh, the AA have turned up with their uh, recovery truck and stuck three stars on it or something like that. I'm not sure if that's actually what happens, but <laughs> um, but it is a, a stamp of approval. It gives people confidence to 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 part with their money and know that they're they're in safe hands coming to us and we're going to do everything that we can to give them a good experience and that's hopefully what people will have when they do come and visit us and if you would like to come and visit us then you can get your tickets kielderobservatory.org have a look at the sessions that are available pick one and uh, get your tickets to come along because we're limited to how many people can come along to to each session many of them are booked up for the immediate few weeks but looking at may june july and, and through the summer uh, there are plenty of sessions available so um, do have a look at that and we'll talk more about that in a little while uh, right now let's have a look at um, what's going to be happening in the night sky over the coming weeks as we we head into April, of course, spring has sprung and um, the clocks have gone forward now. So things changing in the night sky. But what can we expect over the course of the next few weeks in, into April, Dan? It's actually quite a difficult um, couple of months for observing, really without a telescope and that's because a lot of the stuff that's really interesting to see at this time of the year is quite deep objects we're looking at things like galaxies um the big clusters within within virgo where we've got i mean you can you can spend a, a, an entire night almost in a region in in the constellation of virgo we call it the ball of virgo it looks like a big bowl in the sky and you can literally point your telescope in that direction and just move it around and and point it towards little blobs of light and each one of those blobs of light is a galaxy in itself so it's a, a real exploration month for deep sky objects is is um is march into april and such and um, so not much bright stuff on the horizon other than of course the moon which is very bright and such a pain to us all <laughs> <laughs> yes it uh, can steal more than its fair share of glory um easter holidays are going to be happening in in april of course but over the next few months may and june we've got more bank holidays and of course the weather getting better uh, maybe people planning on on maybe thinking of ways that they can get their kids involved in uh, in astronomy as well. And you have some um, special events that happen geared for kids, don't you? Just tell us about some of those events that are going to be starting up again. So we're seeing the return of the um, Solar Quest, which is our summertime kids events that we do. And in these events, we look at the sun. Um, which is a great thing to do because, of course, the sun's out a little bit later and so we can still look at it uh, when those events roll around. Um, so we're looking at uh, things like the sunspots because at the moment the sun is quite active so we generally don't have a spotless day on the sun right now. So there's usually some sunspots that we can point our telescopes towards. We have these really great big solar filters that go over the front of our telescope so we can safely observe the sun and it filters out something ridiculous like 99.99999% of the light from the sun and you're left with this just glow of light when you can see little sunspots in it. And we did have another solar telescope, but it broke recently, so we're not using that this year, so we'll forget about that one. We didn't have it, just just, just ignore the fact that I said that. Um, and we also have our new radio telescope, um, which we can use to observe the sun as well. 
Um, and there's some really cool, interesting little studies that we can, really very quick studies that we can do on the sun with our radio telescope, which hopefully over the summertime we'll be talking about more um, of how, how, how we can do that with the kids and, and with, with um, regular events as well. Um, towards the back end of April... It's probably worth mentioning that April is a really good month for meteor showers. Uh, we have the Lyrids meteor shower, which is coming up on the 22nd of April. And um, albeit that it's not a very active meteor shower, it is synonymous with very bright meteors. Um, so, and, and it's going to need to be a bright meteor for it to cut through the moon because at that time of the month, the moon will have just passed its uh, its full phase. So it'll be going into its uh, its waning gibbous uh, state probably by the 22nd. Um, but nevertheless, 22nd into the 23rd, that's our peak of the Lyrid meteor shower, big bright meteors um, that we often get with that particular one. And the 22nd of April, just looking at my calendar, is Earth Day as well. So uh, what, a, what a day to have a Ooh, peak event. happy Earth Day. Yeah, happy Earth Day to you. Um, and then St George's Day the day after. So Yeah, there's a constellation, dragon constellation. We've got Draco. There you um, go. Which is a dragon slash snake, if you want to call it. I think it's a dragon. Well, there's your link for St George's Day then. That's, that's all you need. Um, hopefully it's a clear night and, and, and you can see it. Now... Um, our regular feature, Pie in the Sky, is uh, a little feature that um, challenges um, the, uh, the the regular astronomer just a little bit. Now, um, I'm not sure the the, the the level of severity that uh, Danny's going to come up with this month, but um, looking for something else in the night sky beyond the norm, you know, just sort of test you a little bit. Uh, if you've got your binoculars or you, you've got your, your telescope, um, somewhere different to point it and see if you can see it. So here's Dan's little Pie in the Sky challenge. And I like globular clusters because I think they're really interesting to, to gaze at, to think that these things, these objects, these these are big balls of stars. If you imagine it, just like you've got loads of stars and you've put them all really close to each other and when you look at it, you can see this just ball of light and this is thousands and thousands of stars, tens of thousands of stars, very, very close to each other, very gravitationally bound to each other. And they exist around the, uh, the outskirts of our galaxy, usually hovering above and below the galaxy, uh, quite close in towards the, the centre of the galaxy as well. And M3 is, is one of those structures. It's about 32,000 light years away from us. Um, and they look spectacular with, um, with a pair of binoculars or with, in this case, you might need a little bit more of power with that. You might need to get something like a, a small telescope and you might need to do it from a dark sky zone. Um, it's just out of the uh, alignment between... You, you could probably pinpoint it actually by using the two stars in Canis Venetici. And the Canis Venetici isn't a very big constellation. It is just two stars. And if you draw a line uh, away from Canis Venetici uh, towards the constellation of Bootes, down towards the very bright star called Arcturus, halfway between the constellation of Canis Venetici and Arcturus, you'll find M3. And it's a, it's a really cool globular cluster to take a look at. So that's my object of the month, M3, number three on the Messier catalogue. Let's go with that. In fact, actually, to make it easy for the next year, why don't we just do M1 all the way? No, we'll not do that. 
that. That's a bad idea. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> you lazy. can't do the same. Can't go M1 in January, M2 in February, M3 in March. <laughs> I think we've rumbled the formula here. Now. Yeah. Uh, okay, so that's the one to look out for then. M3, your challenge for this month on Pie in the Sky. On to our guest for this month then, and we're very pleased to welcome to the Kielder Observatory podcast Dr. Robert Massey, Deputy Executive Director at the Royal Astronomical Society. Now, the Royal Astronomical Society was founded in 1820 and encourages and promotes the study of astronomy, solar system science, geophysics and uh, closely related branches of science. It has more than 4,000 members who are known as fellows and one of those is our very own Director of Astronomy at Kielder Observatory, Dan Pye. Uh, you are one of those fellows. It means I get to use the word, uh, sorry, the, the letters F-R-A-S after my name, which is always very exciting. <laughs> Wow, you've made it. <laughs> um, but I think it's just it's an organisation which is absolutely riddled in history and, um, and, and, and it allows you access to some absolutely incredible uh, literature as well. Burlington House, um, which is uh, the society's offices, uh, the, the, the library that they have there is absolutely extensive, uh, exhausting the amount of stuff that you can go through there. Um, so in terms of when, when you're doing research and when you uh, need to, to learn about something very specific, the chances are you'll be able to access it through RAS. And I think it's really a, a great place for us to connect with other, um, other astronomy groups as well, because the RAS community is so vast and so wide. Um, in particular, bridging um, amateur astronomy and uh, and professional astronomy, um, bringing them together, it allows us um, the ability to be able to access this almost infinite database of people who are RAS members and get an introduction to these people as well. So it's it's a great platform for uh, for, for connections, for learning, um, and of course flies a, an incredible flag for diversity and and engagement in in astronomy and. And, um, and geophysics and, and um, geology as well. Um, so it's a, it's a great um, society which, which um, has been around for forever. Well, 200 years, so not quite forever, but forever in terms of um, the purpose of what I'm saying. <laughs> forever in my lifetime. <laughs> The Kielder Observatory podcast. I'm Ian Brannan. I'm joined by Director of Astronomy at Kielder Observatory, Dan Pye. And our special guest in this episode, for the rest of this episode, will be Dr. Robert Massey, Deputy Executive Director at the Royal Astronomical Society. Um, welcome, Dr. Robert. Um, firstly, can you just tell us um, a little bit of a potted history, really, because <laughs> I know we're stretching the, the realms here, but um, it's over 200 years old, the Royal Astronomical Society. But tell us a bit more about the origins of the organisation and and um, and the kind of things that you're doing now in the present day. Is that that's always a challenge in a, in a sort of thirty second oh, soundbite. Like to give you a challenge. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, anyway, so it was founded in uh, 1820 and in, in the style of the age by a group of gentlemen, and it was only gentlemen in those days sitting down for dinner in a pub in London, which sadly no longer exists, the Freemasons Arms. And uh, it, uh, and they agreed, uh, they had illustrious company, you know, included people like uh, 
well, William Herschel was our founding president, for example, but people like Charles Babbage were there and so on. And they agreed on the need to set up an astronomical society. And before that, I think the kind of only scientific society, it's not the older, there were others around, but it was the era that they were emerging from the Royal Society, which had pretty much done everything until that time. So you just have to imagine, I guess, as well, that all of the people doing that work would have been what we'd now describe as amateurs, wealthy amateurs, because they were they were rich enough to be able to afford to have their own equipment and do the science in their spare time and you know perhaps in some cases after they'd already uh, become wealthy through other means but uh but uh, and so you know they're doing it almost full time but they weren't professional astronomers in the way that we'd understand them today and the society evolved over time always reflecting this kind of central mission to advance the science which also now includes space science and earth sciences to geophysics too uh, have a more professional edge. And I guess, although, you know, we do have a very strong amateur membership, I think about a third, a quarter to a third of the members are uh, amateurs, um, about a quarter outside the UK, but it has more of a focus on the professional science now. And that's also, of course, recognising the fact there are just so many, I can't remember what the count is, but there must be at least 100, probably 200 amateur astronomy societies around the UK as well. So what we do today is we, we still represent those sciences. Our central mission is still to ensure those sciences survive and thrive but we're, you know we're doing that for a whole manner of things whether that's telling the world the government the powers that be uh the media uh the public how great the science is or um running scientific conferences publishing scientific journals uh we maintain a brilliant library which has got lots of fantastic resources in it including books from the 15th century uh we have a first edition uh principia and that kind of thing there first edition copernicus uh, sorry the, so the, the book from 1543 that he published on his on his death uh, demonstrating that the or putting forward rather the idea that the planets went around the sun so that is a flavor of the kind of thing we do today and we do things like this as well we're happy to come and tell other people about our work and talk to people like yourselves and going back to the the time when when the the society was formed, of course, the the knowledge of the night sky of the universe was was much different to what we have now. As you say, the equipment was obviously very very basic, and you're talking about a time when the real the the concepts of the universe were still being ironed out in in many ways too. Yeah, there's a huge technological change in the 19th century, I think, and and you see you see massive advances in theoretical ideas in the 20th century, but in the 19th century, what you see is a big expansion of the things we could do so that's the century that includes things like understanding the spectra the composition of stars and also nebulae and so on and, and pushing forward ideas for that uh, it's the century that sees the move to you know the construction of these giant refracting telescopes and so on studying objects like uh, binary stars trying to see them orbit round another to weigh the stars for the first time so what i often think about in the 19th century and, and of course photography as well that's an absolutely massive step forward as well what i tend to think about in the 19th century is really so the toolkit was emerging that would allow us to really understand the wider universe and you see people like the Earl of Ross building a giant reflector in Ireland and mapping the spiral structure of what you know at the time people didn't know were external galaxies but trying to understand those and because of the development of those techniques it became possible to develop things like modern cosmology where we eventually putting those things together were able to deduce that there were actually galaxies other than our own and that the universe was much bigger than we thought it was so i think that was really one of the big philosophical changes i mean you could carry on extending that into the into the last century as well because of course things like radio astronomy space-based astronomy and so on took off then but the 19th century is very much an epoch of 
real advances in instruments and optics and being able to build bigger and bigger telescopes. And yes, we, we carry on on that journey today, but I think it was the time that we went from it being a science where people relied on drawing and using large telescopes that to starting to do what they would imagine at least were more objective techniques like photography and and the work of you know spectroscopy was a, was a massive step forward as well as i mentioned being able to actually for the first time understand the composition of stars i suppose there are other advances too like measuring the distance to some of the nearest stars happened in the 19th century too uh, 61 Cygni was one of the first ones to be measured and realizing they were actually light years away uh, through the the technique of what you do is something called parallax you you ride the earth around the sun essentially as we all do and you measure the position of the star in one time of the year and you measure it again six months later a tiny shift but through that you can deduce how far away it is all of those things happened in the 19th century and in the present day when we consider the amount of distractions we have in our lives um, and the the amount of ways that we can spend our time and no end of box sets to watch or computer games to play that space still has that wonder doesn't it and maybe you know, movies and, and sci-fi and things like that add to it but for organizations such as the royal astronomical society and for kielder observatory this is a fantastic thing that people are fascinated by space and they want to find out more you know they want to find out the facts the actual facts of what's going on that's absolutely right and that's why we expanded our kind of outreach work our public engagement work because we understand all that so well and you know we get a an array of fantastic speakers from the research community people who can really convey their ideas to the to the public in that way um but i think you're right the wonder of the night sky itself is something that inspires people and you know you're very lucky in a place like kielder where you're relatively free from light pollution to be able to get that that kind of uh awe inspiring moment for people i think there's an enormous power in that i was actually at a conference on light pollution in the last few days talking about that that very topic and I think, but I think even in cities, at least with the brighter objects, people still have that appreciation because you know you're looking up above the kind of hustle and bustle below you, or the uh, the bright lights, of the city, or the streets around you, and you see something that's much more distant that you're aware is not part of your surroundings. And I suppose what's so nice is that at least in the in some cases, you know, with the moon and the, and Jupiter and Saturn and so on, it you know you re- it's like transformational too. If you pick up a even a pair of binoculars, you start to see that they're more than just I mean, the moon obviously doesn't look like a point of light, but you start to see that there are more than points of light. So you realise for yourself that you get that experience of understanding we live in a bigger universe and that, you know, we start to feel a little bit more insignificant as a result, which I actually find always quite refreshing, actually. You know, people might find it, some people find it slightly daunting. I actually find it quite relaxing to know that I'm part of something much larger. And on that subject, really, you know, the Kielder Observatory um, ourselves, we are part of something much larger. There are many observatories dotted around the country. Um, Kielder Observatory, of course, in, in the Northumberland Dark Sky Park, so you get a particularly um, clear view of, of the night sky um, from, from our location. But from the Royal Astronomical Society's point of view, um, how important and, and, and what role do the smaller observatories play into the whole bigger picture of, uh, of astronomy? in the UK? I think they're hugely important. I think if we, you know, it's just, it's a rare science. I mean, astronomy in that sense that it allows the public to take part in it so easily. I mean, I suppose there are, to be fair, there are citizen science campaigns around things, I don't know, like, you know, looking at insect life and bird life and plant life and so on. But the nice thing about astronomy is that it is so genuinely accessible that, you know, you, um, 
if you're lucky enough to have access to an observatory, and as you mentioned, there are a lot of them around the UK, if you seek them out, at least in the ownership of, say, amateur astronomers and so on, um, that can really help. But even if you only have the most simple equipment at home or you just want to look up and start to see the constellations for yourself, you can you can take part in it. But to answer your question, I think I think observatories are great. And, you know, I used to I used to work in one. I used to work in the observatory in Greenwich for about eight years. And uh, I saw for myself just how effective that was. Uh, where I currently live in Bristol, although um, we're moving fairly soon, but I live in Bristol. There's a fantastic astronomy society there. They've got an observatory out at Phelan to the to the west of the city. Uh, when visiting groups come and use that, you know, they have scout groups and so on, uh, guide groups and uh other groups of young people, public evenings and so on, you can see for yourself just what a fantastic asset it is. Uh, and no, I think it's a really great way of allowing people to experience the science themselves and value it without hard selling it. I think you mentioned earlier on that it sells itself. That's one of the ways to do it. If you get that awe-inspiring view of going out and look at an ideally an unsullied sky, but even a light-polluted one, and you look at a magnificent object like Saturn and its rings or the moon for the first time which we should always remember there's a large number of people who've never looked through a telescope they're absolutely blown away by sites like that and it really does help uh, build support for the science and i think get people to think about the bigger questions too you're now the deputy executive director of the royal astronomical society but how did your own journey begin in in astronomy and, and in this particular science but no, I started off, uh, you know, as a child looking at the sky a bit and had a, a small and not very good telescope bought by my dad and, you know, in, used that a bit and it wasn't entirely ideal. And then I actually joined a local astronomy society and found out more that way. Uh, and then I decided, you know, just for the hell of it to study it uh, and uh, do an undergraduate degree and then a, a postgrad degree and, re and, and do research on objects in the Orion Nebula, the things that the Hubble telescope later imaged as forming planetary systems. Uh, before I moved on to become a teacher for a while, and then I had a career in uh, public engagement for eight years in uh, Greenwich before I moved into my current role, where I, oh, well, not my current role, actually, a previous slightly different role where I was doing kind of press work and um, and some policy work. And uh, I, whilst I still do that, I now, you know, manage our um, public engagement team as well. And, uh, you know, so, and that's what I do as deputy director of the RA. So I'm very much outward looking for the society as well as having to get to grips with the nuts and bolts of it. So that's kind of the path I followed. So I do definitely have my feet in the research community is the thing that brought me into it. Um, but um, but now I, you know, try to do lots of associated work too. But I think I think certainly in my, my heart is very much still in, in, you know, I still have that that feel about enthusing the public and the value of that being absolutely vital. And I think, Dan, you're right. I mean, of course, you know, there are loads of bad nights as well for every facility. And that was definitely in our experience in Greenwich too, you know, was that we would go along and it would be cloudy or sometimes even raining and you'd be sitting in a dome. But even the, even the fact of being there conveyed something special as well. And I think the, and you're quite right too, I think that even if you're not able to see it for yourself, that if you're able to explain some of the fantastic concepts, you know, even, at the simplest level, just showing people stunning imagery from telescopes in space and on the ground, that that can have a very powerful effect too. Perhaps because of people have seen those things, they, you know, actually having someone talk through them and adding that level of depth makes a huge difference too. Something that has made a, a huge difference into our knowledge of the universe is the Hubble telescope. And 
the uh, Royal Astronomical Society have done a big presentation about this recently, which you can watch on the RAS website if you want to find out more about Hubble. Um, and it's uh, many years in space and the things that they've done, but also a comparison between Hubble and the James Webb Telescope as well, which is another thing that we've talked about quite a bit because James Webb is the new thing that launched at, um, at around Christmas time. And it's got components on there that were manufactured in the northeast, so we, we, we've spoken about that. There's uh, there's little bits of uh, northeast infrastructure heading into space. Um, but the point in the uh, presentation that Ras did um, really made the point that James Webb is not a replacement for Hubble. It's not the new Hubble as it as it's sort of been branded in some sort of news articles, but but actually um you know it's 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 its own thing. It's 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 a successor. It's it's the next level on, but not a direct replacement. That's that's very fair. I mean, yeah, I actually I do some work with the uh the steering group in the UK that looks after some of the public engagement work for this and I think it's very fair. It's a successor to Hubble, which is not the same thing as being directly comparable. So it's it's going to take some of the science that Hubble did forward. And so, for example, one of the most iconic images from Hubble is of the, the, the deep field, which is a very, very long exposure of the distant universe. Basically, the scientists having the, the pretty smart idea of pointing the telescope at an apparently blank bit of sky. Uh, I think the longest exposure they did was something like two weeks when you added up the, the duration. And they found thousands and thousands of galaxies which are very faint and very distant and because they're very distant it means we're seeing them as they were shortly after the universe formed but there is a barrier which is that if you want to see even younger galaxies I mean these are still big numbers so we're talking about things that we can see at the moment there are a few hundred million years after the universe formed after the big bang but if you want to see back to the very first stars and galaxies you need a telescope that can see redder light because these objects we see are not only are we seeing them as they are in the distant past but the universe uh, the expansion of the universe that we have today means that their light is shifted to the red and so at some point that goes beyond the light you can see red light into the infrared so we're familiar with that we feel infrared on our skin when we go out in sunlight and so on but to see it you need a different kind of telescope and that's what James Webb is about the idea is that it will be able to see those one of, one of its targets anyway is to see those very very young stars and galaxies so we might be able to or we hope to be able to with Webb in a few months time start to see the very first stars and galaxies that formed as they were because one of the the big great concepts in astronomy that I alluded to before is that telescopes are a bit like time machines that the light takes so long to reach us that you're looking at things as they were in the past I did I did vaguely um, uh, have some fun with my daughter the other day by pointing out that we never see each other even in the same room quite as we are at that instant because there's about a hundred millionth of a second for the light to uh, travel between us and she, she she was slightly surprised by that and then looking around at different objects but it was but it was a nice exercise I do recommend it um, but yeah so that's the kind of things that uh, Web will be doing that's one of the things that we're most interested in but of course there's a vast amount of other science you can do infrared light is very good at getting through uh, dust so we can look inside clouds of dust and dust where there are forming stars and planets too for example and and you know as you would expect we're also very interested in finding the kind of worlds that will go on to be a bit like the earth as well and, and yet again trying to understand if there's life elsewhere in the universe not necessarily probably not in fact discovering it with uh, james webb but trying to find the kind of places it might be 
Yeah, and and that is obviously a very a very big question that that as 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 long as um, perhaps uh, there's been a astronomy that, that there's been that question of uh, is there is there life elsewhere? And I think many astronomers do believe perhaps that there is in some form or another, and it's just a case of uh, it's just a case of locating it. And uh, exoplanets uh, I know have been mentioned many times as perhaps being the the key, or or even if they're very very distant ones that that they they're likely to be where we are going to have our best chance of of finding that. Um, is that is that a view that you share as well? Yeah, I, I think there's life elsewhere in the universe. I, I wouldn't want to comment on how easily, on how abundant it is, or how common intelligent life is elsewhere. But I'm pretty sure it's it, it seems almost inconceivable there isn't some form of life elsewhere. I mean, it's one of those fields where you get tantalising bits of evidence and not quite enough to say definitively whether it's there or not so for example you know every time there's a there's a new mission to mars it's generally the the underpinning premises are we going to find some traces of fossil life on the surface wouldn't that be extraordinary you know obviously we've got the rover usually a suite of rovers going around the surface of mars looking for that kind of thing and more to follow and when we bring a sample back at the end of the decade or so that'll be another another thing to look for in the lab uh last year we had the actually it wasn't last year it was the year before time time's flying in the covid era isn't it and i'm quite glad it's it's different now but uh <laughs> we had our big press briefing on traces of biomarkers not life but hints of biomarkers in the in the atmosphere of venus the specific chemical phosphine led by a, a uk scientist jane greaves in cardiff actually using uh, radio data to find that or sub submillimeter data a particular part of the spectrum and those kind of hints are what we're, we're looking for, really, I think. So, you know, the, the, if you went back 40 years, we didn't know definitively about any planets around any other stars. And now we know there are thousands. And then the next question was really, I guess, well, how common are Earth-like planets? So we've started to see some, not many, I have to say, but some in the data from hmm. observatories like Kepler that hint the word. We can't be absolutely certain because we've got all the data on them, but start to look like places that it might be possible to have life. And then the next question is to do more detailed studies. Again, you know, partly with telescopes like James Webb, but also with the big ones being built on the ground this dec this decade to look at the atmospheres of those planets to see if you see traces of the kind of chemicals we associate life with life on Earth, or or perhaps other indicative chemicals too. And it's this this incremental quest, you know, when you think about it, you think it's very easy to think aliens, you know, coming here, landing on Earth probably isn't going to happen, is it, realistically? There's, when you look at the distances and all the issues associated with that. But what we might be more likely to find is traces of life, either perhaps very simple life in our own solar system or on planets around other stars. And we'll be looking at the chemistry to understand that, you know, hints of abundant liquid water um the suggestion that there's an ecosystem that we can get a, a hint of at a huge distance. And then eventually, presumably, if we build even bigger telescopes, then we start to be able to not so much see the light, but see, you know, image Earth-like planets. Perhaps that's something that will happen this century. I think that would be, be an extraordinary achievement. If there was one question that you could have the answer to now that, that, that you wonder about space and, and somebody could, 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 could reveal that, what, what would be your one question? Mm, very good question. I mean, I would definitely go with the like, are we alone in the universe? Absolutely. I'd, I'd certainly like to see that answered. Um, if, if I'm going to stretch this slightly so we don't repeat ourselves, I think it would be really interesting to know how the universe is going to end to and how long that will take. I'm pretty optimistic it's a very, very long way off. 
but you know, I'd I'd go with, I'd go with wanting to know the fate of the universe too. I think. I think I'm more interested in 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 how it began. Um, but I I really enjoyed a I I can't and I can't remember who it was uh, by, but there was a theory. Uh, um, was it a couple of years ago? It was certainly within the last five years where somebody suggested that the the end state of the universe could be the potential similarity or bare similarities to the origins of the universe, which that for me, I feel quite comfortable with that. I'm quite happy with that. <laughs> I'm more happy with that than things like the Boltzmann brain problem and stuff like that. That that gets a little bit too abstract and weird for me, I think. <laughs> I did, did understandably really yeah i'm with you on that uh I, yeah that, that's true the idea of, of lots of universe budding universes constantly budding off in some huge multiverse is is you're right it's uh it's strangely comforting in the sense you think that something is always there so it does have a degree of being eternal about it it certainly stops the existential crises of wondering whether or not i am just a floating brain in the middle of absolutely nothingness in <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that just that can really send off an existential crisis with most people. I think what I find for, for me, my experience of, of astronomy is that um, when I was a kid, um, I didn't think it was cool to take a step into astronomy and 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 STEM related subjects, and instead I went off to study um, media and then theatre. Uh, I don't know why I thought that was cooler. <laughs> But I did. Um, and so that's the route that I took. But now I feel like there's been a real shift in that. And I, I wondered what your experience is of that from, from a RAS point of view and a personal point of view as to how that dynamic's changed and how it feels cooler, if you like. <laughs> yeah, that that's fair. No, I think that's fair. And generally, if you, you know, if you have that strangers on a train conversation and you say you work in astronomy, you know, even though lots of aspects of my job was not as exciting as people might think actually uh generally people want to talk to you about it and they're interested and they will ask you you know i guess this is probably your experience too you know they, they will ask you some big question you know it doesn't matter who it is if you if you you know if you're on a long journey and you get talking that's the kind of thing that happens and i think it's it has that status in science you know uh most even a lot of you know adolescents who are otherwise not particular fans of stem subjects will ask you the odd question in the right setting about it too so i think it does it is something that tracks through the ages in a way that other, other sciences can find more difficult you know and and uh and that's i guess the degree of coolness associated with it. i mean obviously we've got you know media role models and so we've got people like brian cox and so on who you know particle physicist are presenting astronomy but you know doing it in a Doing it in a way that absolutely uh, captures the imagination of a lot of people, uh, and and I guess you know I don't know there is something quite nice you know we we had that experience in COVID of people being able to look up at the wider universe and perhaps having feeling that was quite a creative activity too. You see with the advent of the you know ever better smartphones, let alone really good photographic equipment, it becomes quite easy for people to go and take their own pictures of the sky and so on as well, and maybe that's helping drive it too. Uh, I, I also there's a lot of work uh, between artists and scientists trying to convey these ideas as well and trying to explore how they can be represented and I think that can be a lot of fun as well. Another thing that um, uh, I spotted that's actually one of the articles on on your w website at the moment um, is talking about this um, Kepler 16b which is an exoplanet that um, has, has been observed but it, it, an unusual one in that it's orbiting two planets so um, there's, a, there's an article on your site about that and that's obviously something different and maybe something we'll, we'll see more of perhaps as, as James Webb starts uh, delving deeper and this is not James Webb that spotted this I know but as we delve deeper into the universe maybe 
more of these uh, these rare quirks um, might start to, to come to light. Yeah, I, I mean that seems almost inevitable, right? You know, you look at you if you think about the number of stars in the galaxy, uh, and if you sample enough of them, if you sample thousands and thousands and thousands. It would be odd if you didn't start to find these rare cases too. I mean, a big question for us, of course, is, is the Earth a really rare case or not? You know, that's that's part mm. of the whole question about life elsewhere. Is it, are we living on a planet that just has incredibly special circumstances and we were lucky enough that we're on it, that, you know, life was able to take root? But but you're right. I mean, you know, you'd be looking around. There the will, of course, be, you know, binary systems are very common. Uh, the, I think that's right, as in most stars are binaries. So therefore it's not surprising that you find planetary systems around them. I mean, there is the caveat, which is that if the stars are, they, they have to be either quite close together or they have to be very far apart because otherwise they, it's very difficult to have stable orbits around them. But there are certainly plenty of cases where that's possible. And uh, and I think as we expand our data set, we are only going to see more of those. And there are there, there are more missions coming up as well as Webb and Son that who's job it will be to study and characterize planets around other stars i've absolutely no doubt that we'll see these weird and wacky cases it's it's good material for science fiction writers if nothing else as you get ever ever more uh, unusual (laughs) cases and circumstances i'm sure they're working on it right now in hollywood um i'm wondering about light pollution because um at kielder observatory we have the dark sky park, really clear skies. But of course, in any city, that's not the same uh, conditions for, for observing. Um, and, and particularly, I'm thinking London, thinking of the Royal Observatory and and how it is and, and, and how your view of the, the sky can be from, from really densely populated, highly light polluted cities, particularly that I guess that you find uh, in, in abundance in London, but in the, in the bigger cities in general. And most, and 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 that's true in most cities and most suburban settings. I mean, you're absolutely right. And you know, we're not we're not directly connected with Greenwich. We share the city with it, and you know, we've got good connections. But the, uh, I mean, there are groups like the Baker Street Irregular Astronomers who are a fantastic set of people who set up telescopes in Regent's Park, which is certainly not a dark sky site, but uh, but just has a nice level horizon, so you can go there and uh, and look at things. I think you just have to compromise. Um, it's it there's there's merit in this because I think that. I'm very much in favour of dark sky settings and trying to make sure that we ensure that places are preserved and you get, you know, all these different designations, reserves and communities and places and parks and so on. Uh, but it's also really important to bear in mind that, you know, the UK is an, ur- an urban country. And if we want to get this message out there, we need to encourage people in cities to enjoy the sky too. And perhaps to think about how they can make their own setting obviously not it's never going to be as dark in the center of london as it is in kielder but perhaps nonetheless starting to think about how we can control light pollution there too um it's um, on a different topic it's also very good for uh biodiversity as well you know there's a lot of evidence that excessive light is not doing our, our wider environment any good and you know this conference i mentioned i was at this week uh one of the contributors who runs a uh company called dark source i think it is it's a consultancy specializing in in compliant night sky friendly lighting pointed out that you know this is one of the environmental problems we can solve actually just by flicking a switch now i'm being a bit facetious we don't want all our cities to go dark overnight or but but you know the point is that other things there's a, an enduring legacy this one if we make an effort we can probably make a real difference and more quickly than in many other cases and you know i think it would be fantastic if not that every you know we're not going to expect everybody as i mentioned in the cities to go out and see a pristine view but if they had a nicer view I can't see how that could be a bad thing for everything from the 
environment around us to actually our mental health as well, appreciating that there's something bigger than our immediate surroundings. I think the cost of electricity as well encourages us all to switch the lights off. <laughs> well, right now, that's that's a very uh, appropriate message, isn't it? Quite. And one thing that we should mention before you go, um, Dr. Robert Massey, is that uh, you have a book out as well that people can purchase. I don't, it's not a new book, but uh, th- there is a book. Tell us about that. I know. Well, this is... This is um, you know, I realise people listening to this, this is the book I uh, co-authored with, um, I have to say it was her idea, uh, Alexandra Losker, who's an art historian friend, uh, actually a friend of my wife's, and because uh, my wife is an art historian too. Moon Art, Science and Culture, if you haven't read it, is still available. Um, and it basically uh, takes some of the real gems of uh, in fine art and in science associated with our nearest neighbour. So they're, a, you know, a really wonderful collection of images. I mean, I can't pick out individual favorites but there are a lot of them and as you would imagine i you know i help source a lot of the ones associated with science but i also got in things like illustrations of the moon uh, many of the kind of ephemera associated with it you know the way it's influenced us across society and uh, everything from fashion to food so you know do take a look if you want to it's um yeah it's published by uh, hachette and available online at least at this point now a couple of years after the uh, moon landers. if you're ever at an event and we happen to be speaking there we'll happily sign it for you as well well our thanks to our guest in this episode dr robert massey who is the deputy executive director at the royal astronomical society and thanks to you as well for listening and joining us in this episode if you're new to the kilda observatory podcast well please um, have a listen to some of the previous episodes we cover all sorts of things we uh, recently spoke with dr natalie starkey all about the volcanoes of the solar system dr olivia jones who is involved in the james webb telescope mission and uh, was uh, part of that uh, that launch team and uh, lots of information about what the James Webb Telescope can do. I know I mentioned it in this episode a little bit, but uh, a full episode about that. And um, on a, the other aspect of, uh, of things in space, what about space junk and tracking satellites? Well, at Kielder Observatory, we've become the first place in the world to take part in a new project, which is tracking space junk and satellites. Um, which is um, happening right on the hillside, right next to the uh, the observatory itself. Find out more about that project in a recent episode. And um, in February as well, we had an Ask an Astronomer special, so lots of questions from various people about different aspects of um, life, the universe, and everything. Um, you can have a listen to that and many, many more episodes on whichever podcast app you use. Thanks again for joining us. We'll be back next month with another episode, and you can find out more about what's happening at Kielder Observatory on our social media pages, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Search for Kielder Observatory. And indeed, uh, you can have a look at our own website as well, kielderobservatory.org. All the latest news there as well. And of course, and crucially, all the information about the various sessions which are taking place at the observatory. Your chance to book your tickets as well. As I say, things fairly busy uh, at the moment, but uh, looking further ahead into uh, the next few months, you might find some spaces. So go online and have a look, and we hope to see you in person soon. Thanks for listening to the Kielder Observatory podcast. We'll see you soon.